Okay. Oh, okay, excellent. Oh, there we go. I hear myself a little bit better now. So, okay, very good. Well, again, my name is Stephen Jones, and uh, I have had a great joy over the last several months to get to know your pastoral search team and then to interact with the leadership team. We've been praying for you, and it is a joy for me and my family to be here with you today. I want to introduce to you briefly my family. So my wife, Natalie, is here, and then we have three children, Dylan, Heidi, and Abby, and they're all here this morning. Thank you already for your hospitality. We've met a few of you before the service and over the last few weeks and look forward to getting to know more of you after the service today and during our time of fellowship as well. And as I thought about what to open up in God's word, the Lord uh, drew my heart to the gospels because I wanted to just simply start together with you by fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're gonna turn over to Mark chapter two this morning and I think it would be a wonderful opportunity for us this first time and Lord willing, the first among many for us to be able to gaze upon Christ and to delight in him and abide in him together by looking at a passage in scripture that's found in Mark chapter two. It's a story that's probably familiar to many of you. If you grew up in the church and you've read your Bible for a number of years, you're going to recognize this story as Jesus healing the paralytic. And in the midst of that, there are other things going on that we're seeing Christ's authority to forgive our sin as well. So we're going to study this passage this morning and look together at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us and then pray and we'll jump right into our text this morning. It says in Mark 2, verse 1, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Father, we granted a great privilege to be here in your house, the house of the Lord. The Bible describes the church as the body of Christ, and so we consider ourselves to be members of that body this morning. There's hands and feet, there's eyes and ears and mouths, and everybody has a role to play, and yet we recognize and confess Jesus Christ as the head of his church this morning. We thank you so much that the church is the body of Christ, it is the bride of Christ, the precious people of God, the blood-bought saints. And so this morning, we commit this time to you as we listen to you speak through your word. We ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law and that it would knit our hearts together and that it would refine and purify and sanctify us to make us more into the image and likeness of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. 
Well, a couple weeks ago, I was meeting with a friend, and uh, he has, for a number of years now, been working with uh, financial analysis. He's currently going to school to be an accountant. He also shared how he's done uh, record keeping with medical records. And he was telling me for a while of how he was a tax advisor. And I asked him, what is your favorite part of this job that you do? And he said, my favorite part of, of being a record keeper and an analyst, he says, not everybody likes to do this stuff, but I, I like working with numbers. I like working with paper. But most importantly, he said, I like to help people. And he told me that there was one time where a lady came in expecting that she was going to owe $1,000 to the IRS for some unpaid taxes. And as he pulled out the records and talked with her and crunched some numbers, he was able to give her the news that she did know $1,000. In fact, she was actually going to get a $100 refund. And she went away from that place so overjoyed, and he had the joy and the satisfaction of being able to help this woman. And in a similar way, we have a man here who comes to Jesus for help, and while he hopes that perhaps at best he can get Jesus' attention, and perhaps that maybe Jesus will be able to solve his physical problem, he's going to leave this place with much better news than he expected. So the title of our message this morning is, Your Sins Are Forgiven, and that is precisely what Jesus says to this man and what he offers to each and every one of us in this room this morning as well. Our story is that kind of surprising twist that we expect one thing, and yet Jesus does actually the very opposite. And while it's good news for many there on that day, we also discover there's some controversy going on in the middle of the passage. And we'll look at that a little bit more about who these scribes are and why they actually, instead of rejoicing at the news of Jesus, they call him a blasphemer. So we need to understand the tension that's happening there and the opposition against Christ as well. Our story can be broken down into three points this morning. First of all, we're going to look at a suffering man. A suffering man. And then we'll turn our attention to a surprising cure. And lastly, in our final minutes together, we'll look at a stunned crowd. So let's first of all look at the suffering man in verses 1-4. through four. The passage begins by Jesus returning to a place called Capernaum. And if you're familiar with the geography of Israel, perhaps you've looked at a map in the back of your Bible before, or you remember seeing these in Sunday school, but the vast majority of the biblical text took place in a very, very small area in the Middle East. It's modern-day Israel. Some have called it Palestine, and there's a number of Palestinians and Jews that continue to live in that place to this present day. But if you can with me, try and imagine the Mediterranean Sea And then on the far east of the Mediterranean Sea is a little sliver of land called Israel. And the people of Israel have lived there over the centuries. And in that place of Israel, up in the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. And then the water spills out of that sea and goes down through the Jordan River and would empty into a place called the Dead Sea. And somewhere just a little bit west of the Dead Sea is the city of Jerusalem or the city of David, where one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reign over his people. But if you have a picture there, you've got Jerusalem, you've got the Dead Sea to the east, you've got the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and then up in the northern region of this small area is a sea or a large lake called the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was a location uh, about 25 miles in circumference, so not a huge lake. Some have compared it to Lake Tahoe. Anybody here been to Lake Tahoe before? So if you've ever been to that area and you try and visualize, you can see pretty much around the entire perimeter of the lake. And that's what the Sea of Galilee was like. 
But this was an area where fishermen would live and their families, and there were villages and towns that were dotted and scattered all around the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had chosen one of those places in particular to be his headquarters and his base for where he would often teach and preach and perform miracles and so forth. So one of the key cities that he went to, and you could hop on a plane and go to that place to this present day, it's called Capernaum. And Capernaum was a a little fishing town. Uh, We're told in the scriptures that there were several disciples of Jesus that came from this town of Capernaum. So we have Peter and his brother Andrew. We have James and his brother John. And they all came from this little fishing village of Capernaum. In the previous chapter, we're told at one point that Peter's mother-in-law gets very, very sick to the point where she could possibly die. A a death-threatening illness. And Jesus comes to Peter's mother-in-law and removes her fever and completely restores her. And that happens in a house that's in Capernaum. So here we're told that Jesus, after traveling about and going throughout the region of Galilee and different towns and villages and waysides and teaching and preaching and doing miracles, He's coming back home to Capernaum and it was reported that He was at home. And what does it say in verse 2 that Jesus was doing when he returned back home? He he might have been ready for a rest, but instead of him being able to to take a vacation and and to just kind of close the doors and tell people to go away, it says in verse 2 that many were gathered together and there was not even more room, even at the door, and he was what? He was preaching the word to them. And this is an important theme that we already have seen in the Gospel of Mark. If we'd read through the opening chapter, you'll look over at chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. We'll see that preaching has already been a prevalent theme in this book. In fact, even before Jesus was preaching, someone else was preaching. His name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. And it says in Mark 1, 4 that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. And notice this, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist, in the preceding years before Jesus' public ministry, he had been down by the Jordan River that we talked about a moment ago, and he was proclaiming repentance. He was telling people, the king is about to arrive, and you need to get ready for it. And in order to do that, you need to repent of your sins. That means you need to admit to God that you are a sinner. He is holy. You've fallen short of His perfect standard. You need to turn away from your old lifestyle. You need to prepare your heart for the return of God Most High. He is coming. Repent and show your repentance by being baptized in the river. Incidentally, we're a Baptist church. And a Baptist church exists to obey that command to make public what is a personal confession of our faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. So I'm sure you've seen that here before, and it's always a celebration when believers get together and they celebrate somebody new that's come to Christ. And we see the baptistry. I think it's behind the screen here. Is that right? So we love when that screen goes up and we get to see the baptistry back there and somebody gets in the water and you're like, what in the world is going on? Well, it's an obedience to this command to be baptized for repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's an outward symbol of an inward act. And John the Baptist was preaching the gospel and preaching repentance and then carrying that out by symbolically having people get baptized. That ministry of preaching continues on, and not only did John the Baptist do that, but then Jesus himself is doing that. If you look down at chapter 1, verse 14, it says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Here it is proclaiming the gospel of God. And we're even told a summary of what that gospel message was in verse 15, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the gospel. Sounds very similar to what John the Baptist had been preaching. And now Jesus is picking up that same theme, but instead of him being the forerunner and the preparer for the Messiah, he is the Messiah. And he's telling the people, be ready because the kingdom of, him, the kingdom of God is about to be established. The king is in your midst. Repent. Believe in the Lord. And it says that he is preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God. You go further into chapter 1, down in verse 38. Verse 38, it says that Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. This was at the very essence of His ministry was to be teaching, to be preaching, to be proclaiming the Gospel, to be expounding the Scriptures. And as we have interacted with Calvary Church, we've been so grateful for our relationship and for our many conversations and phone calls that have gone back and forth and text messages and, and uh, resumes have been sent and questionnaires have been filled out and interviews have taken place. And there's a number of things that Calvary is looking for in a pastor. They want someone to shepherd them, and rightly so. You want somebody that's going to care for you. You want somebody that's going to give direction and oversight and support. But one of the most important things is you want somebody that's going to preach God's Word. And we're grateful for that, and we're praying for God to give you wisdom, for God to give us wisdom. But we believe it's very important that, that really amongst all the other things that a pastor does, that he's regularly teaching and preaching the Word of God because we're following the pattern of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ and the command throughout the rest of the New Testament that God's people need to be fed. They need to be fed biblical truth. And just as we need a physical food to be physically healthy, we need spiritual food to be spiritually healthy. And so God's Word provides that for us. And just as we together are collectively seeking God's will, and you're wanting someone that's going to teach and to preach. And by the way, i got to say, Pastor Adam is amazing, isn't he? I've known Pastor Adam for a while. I'm, I'm so grateful you had him. I'm just sorry you can't have him forever. It doesn't appear. But he's a great guy. He's been a friend uh, for many years. I, I highly respect him and admire him. And one thing I know is when he comes to this pulpit, he's faithful in teaching and preaching the Word of God. And we want that to continue in this place. So Jesus is preaching and he comes back home after going throughout Galilee to sort of his home base to Capernaum. And it says that there's so many people around that there's not even room at the door. So as that's going on, imagine with me a first century house, Jesus inside of it. People have been filtering in as word gets out and pretty soon the living room is filled and maybe any side rooms are filled and any courtyards are filled and even the doorways and entrance into the house, it is absolutely packed in this place. I mean, they are packing in like sardines. And then after a period of time, Jesus is already in the process of teaching and preaching. You know, there, there's this extra crowd and there's these four friends that are carrying a stretcher with a man on it. And they're kind of in the back where the door is, and Jesus is up front, and, and they're perhaps asking, excuse us, excuse us, can we please get through? Can you please make way? We have somebody. It's very important for them to get to Jesus. We need to get this friend to Jesus. And the people are ignoring them. The people are saying, hey, buddy, wait your turn. We've been here first. We want to listen to what he has. Maybe we have other illnesses and maladies that we want him to treat as well, but you're going to have to wait till later. And so Jesus continues to teach there in the house, and the people are crowded in, and it's packed in tight. And after a few more minutes go by, all of a sudden there's, there's a stir outside. 
and they hear some people that are climbing up a ladder or a stairway, and then there's some muffled voices, and all of a sudden there's some pounding as though there's footsteps up on top of the roof, and pretty soon debris starts to fall down out of the ceiling, and there's more thumping, and then all of a sudden a shaft of light comes down into the room, and before long they're peeling back this mud and straw and brick and whatever the materials were of the rooftop, and these four friends are lowering down this man right in the middle of the crowd and literally they interrupt Jesus's sermon I mean no longer can they ignore these friends and the paralyzed man they've got to do something about it now we're told that he was a paralytic which simply means that he couldn't use all of his limbs Uh, perhaps he was uh, both paralyzed in hands and feet many scholars believe that he probably had a spinal injury of some kind you know was this a birth defect Was this a tragic accident or injury as a child? Uh, Was this some kind of disease that had taken over part of his nervous system? We don't know, but you can imagine uh, it's, it's difficult now to have some kind of paralysis or injury, but long before there were ADA codes and provisions for people that couldn't get around with mobility issues, this man was absolutely dependent on friends to get anywhere. And it took four friends to hoist him up and carry him on the stretcher. More than likely, this man was just a beggar, barely scraping out an existence, hoping to get through another day, another day. And then he hears word of a miracle worker that's in the area. And could it be that Jesus, this rabbi, this miracle worker, that he would take a moment and give attention to this paralyzed man and help him with his problem? That is his hope. The crowds are pressed in tight. The men lower the paralyzed man down in the midst. And we notice in verse 5 that Jesus saw their faith. And I want to stop there for just a moment. Because there's an important spiritual lesson for here today. You know, Jesus is a busy man. He's teaching and He's preaching and He's traveling and He's probably tired, humanly speaking. He's got lots of other needs to attend to, and yet do you notice how Jesus takes time to address this man's need? Jesus is never so busy that He won't take time to address your need. Yeah, there's a lot of other needs in this room. There's a lot of other needs in our community. But at the end of the day, no matter what your problems are, it could be a physical illness like this paralyzed man is dealing with. It could be a problem at work that you're thinking, man, i got to get up tomorrow and I've got to go back into this drama and I'm not sure what's going to happen. And it's nagging you and it's uh, it's taking all of your focus and all of your attention and it's stressing you out. And and you're thinking, well, God's got bigger things on His plate than I have. You know, that He's got other things to attend to. I don't want to bother Him. I don't want to nag Him. This is so small, so petty. Listen, God is never so busy. Jesus is never so busy that He won't take time to attend to your individual needs. The Bible describes Jesus as a great high priest. And I'm thankful we don't live in a a religious system anymore where we have a priesthood. The priesthood now is the priesthood of believers according to the New Testament. So no pastor is a priest or a mediator between God and man. We have instant direct access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and through His Holy Spirit that indwells us. But Jesus is the great high priest, and our access ultimately comes through Him. And the Bible says in Hebrews that we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Now, he's speaking in the negative here. We don't have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize. The reverse of that would simply be saying, we have a high priest that knows full well what you're going through. He sympathizes with you. He has suffered in the past here upon this earth. And this passage amongst many are a reminder that He is acquainted with grief and with the sufferings of His people. And here in the midst of busy ministry, He pauses to give attention to this paralyzed man. He's familiar with pain. He knows your weakness. He sympathizes with you. He sees you. He listens to you. He loves you. You're not bothering Him when you come to Christ with your requests and your problems. He's seen a lot of cases over the years. And yet still, He treats every single new patient that comes into His room as though they are the most important person on the planet. He gives you His full and undivided attention in a way that only God can do. I mean, we can't do that. You have two or three kids and they're all speaking at once and you've got to say, whoa, slow down. Let's go one at a time. But Jesus doesn't have to do that. He can simultaneously listen to your prayer and your prayer and your prayer and your prayer and He can give attention and meet the needs of His people all at the same time. I love the promise that's made in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3. Centuries earlier before Jesus came, the prophet wrote of the Messiah that a bruised reed He will not break and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth Justice. You ever been burning a candle in the kitchen or in the back patio and that maybe the wind picks up a little bit and the wick starts to, to go down and you've just barely got a tiny glowing flame? And, and the Bible is saying that sometimes our lives are like that where the wind is blowing or the wick is starting to draw to the close and God is not going to come up and just squeeze and snuff out that flame. He doesn't extinguish the flame of life. God loves you. He cares for you. He's going to nurture and kindle that life and that strength that you need. He's not going to just snuff out, or as it says here, He will not quench a faintly burning wick. Or you think about maybe, maybe a flower stem that's kind of blowing in the breeze, and then the breeze picks up and it wants to kind of snap over and break, and that stem of a plant, He's not going to come over and just crush that reed. He's going to, he's going to tend to that. He's going to care for that. He's going to nurture that. and He does that with each one of us. So first of all, we see a suffering man here and we're reminded that Christ has suffered. He's acquainted with the suffering of His people. And He gives personal attention to each and every one of us with whatever our problems may be. Secondly, let's look at the surprising cure. The surprising cure in verses 5-7. through We read it already, but at this point we might expect that the story would continue in a trajectory that we've seen already a number of times in Mark and we'll see later, you would expect that this man comes down into the room, Jesus stops his sermon perhaps, and that he looks at the man and says, man, you are healed. Go out. Pick up your pallet and walk. We would expect perhaps in that moment that as he said to Peter's mother-in-law, your fever is gone. You are well. Sir, your illness is gone. You can stand up and walk. And Jesus full well had the power to do that in that moment. But that's not what He does. He doesn't look at this man and say to this man, you are healed. Get up and walk. Instead, He says what? Your sins are forgiven. Now we're not even told and it doesn't appear that the man asked for his sins to be forgiven. 
So this may be Jesus providing something the man had not consciously even thought that he was asking for, but the fact that Jesus saw their faith, he saw the faith of the paralyzed man, he saw the faith of the friends, the fact that he sees the faith and rewards that, I do believe genuinely this man knew he had a sin problem. And and it's possible that he thought that his sin disqualified him from asking for physical healing because people did see a connection sometimes between their spiritual problems and their physical problems. You might remember the story of Job and remember what Job's friend said when Job was sick and ill and things were happening to him and things were happening to his family and to all of his estate. They said, wow, Job, you must have really made God mad. You must have really done something evil and wicked and now you're trying to cover it up, but God knows better and he's punishing you. You're getting what you deserve. Had Job been sinful? I mean, he was a sinner like us, but he had not done anything to particularly incur the wrath of God. In fact, he had been described by God as a righteous and a blameless man. He was a man of faith, a man of obedience and love to God, and yet Job was suffering in great ways. We have the story in, I think it's John chapter 9, of a blind man. And the disciples look at this blind man and they say to Jesus, Jesus, did this man sin? Or did his parents sin? Because obviously somebody must have sinned for him to have this major, this major sickness and malady. And Jesus says neither one of those is the case. That's not why this man is blind, but rather that the works of God can be shown in your midst and God can be glorified. So there was often in their minds a connection between physical illness and a spiritual problem, sin. And it could be that this, uh, this man who Jesus is healing recognizes his sin and is fearful that his sin could prevent him from being made physically whole again. But whatever's going on there in the mind of this paralyzed man, we're surprised, I think the paralyzed man may have been surprised, and certainly the scribes in just a moment are going to be surprised as well, because it says uh, here, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes are the religious leaders of the day. We might think of them as somewhat equivalent to pastors, seminary professors, Uh, These were people that were often academics. They were people that were looked up upon by society and were kind of the religious elite. And they knew the scriptures quite well in many ways, but there were a couple problems. One problem is that the scribes and another group called the Pharisees had added additional laws to what the Bible actually said. You know, we're warned in scripture, right, not to take away anything from the Bible and not to add anything to the Bible. And yet the scribes were doing that very thing. They were adding additional laws and regulations, and ceremonies, and kind of all these tick boxes of, hey, if you're a really spiritual person, you're going to do this, and this, and this, and this, things that were beyond what the Scripture had taught. And in addition to adding to Scripture, they also were guilty of an incredible amount of self-righteousness. They just, they, they looked around and compared themselves to others and thought, hey, at least I'm not bad like that person over there is. And so they often looked at themselves and said, I'm pretty good before God, and I do all the things that God has called me to. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I keep the Sabbath. I obey the kosher dietary laws. I check all the boxes, circumcision on the eighth day. You know, you name it, I've done it. I'm a master of the law. I'm an expert in the law. Uh, All these other people around me, they're ignorant, and I know more. And then Jesus comes along, and these scribes suddenly feel very threatened by this. 
And the scribes are uh, coming to Galilee. They already were aware of Jesus and had seen Him and heard Him summon Jerusalem. But now they're coming up to the northern territory to listen and see for themselves of what Jesus is saying. And they are shocked when Jesus claims your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine if after leaving here today, you, you, you go out to lunch perhaps, and you accidentally, after you pay for lunch, you leave your wallet at the table, and then somebody saw that, and they come by, and they pick it up, and they grab it. And, and, and thankfully, somehow, after a period of time, uh, maybe you call the police and let them know, and somehow that wallet is recovered, and $500 have been stolen, but at least you got your wallet back, and you're thankful for that, but you're angry at the same time. And then you meet that person that stole your wallet. And man, that hurt when they did that. You felt betrayed. You're angry. It was unfair. They refused to give the money back. They say, oh, I, I didn't do it. You can't prove it. And then I come along and say, you know what? This guy who stole this money, you're forgiven. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And then I leave. How would you feel if somebody did something wrong against you and then somebody else comes along and simply says, hey, you know what? No big deal. You're forgiven. It's covered. Now, perhaps at best if I paid the difference, and then it, it absorbed the cost myself, it would be considered okay and just. But for one person to just come in and say that whatever problems there are, they're forgiven. It's covered. It's taken care of. We don't have the right to do that. We don't have the right to, to just simply declare that a crime is now covered and it's paid for unless you know, we have punishment take place or restitution has occurred. And that's basically what these scribes think Jesus is doing. They're like, they're, they're like, how dare this man simply say that this paralyzed man is right with God? He has no right to do that. This man's problem is with God, not with Jesus. Jesus does not have the authority to forgive sins in their minds. He's taking the role of God who alone can forgive, and therefore claiming to be God, he is a blasphemer. That's their line of thinking. Nobody should be saying this except God. And by the way, on that part, they're not wrong. Nobody should be saying your sins are forgiven except for God Himself. Listen to these Scriptures. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. And yet we have over in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is a God like you that can pardon iniquity and remove transgression? The answer is no one. And yet Jesus prays for the forgiveness of His people. And in Mark chapter 2, we see He has the authority to forgive His people. They claim that it is blasphemy because no one but God can do that, and yet they're missing one very important part of the equation. What if? What if Jesus is God? Then He can declare forgiveness and have full authority to do so. It's interesting that even in these verses right here, if you look with me down at verse 6, it says that the scribes were sitting there questioning where? In their hearts. So they're, they're, they're thinking this through and they're pondering in their minds and in their hearts. You know, they're, they're sitting there and watching this happen or standing there and watching this happen and they're not saying anything verbally, but they're thinking it through. How dare he? How could he do this? That's blasphemy. 
And then it says in verse 8 that Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they questioned within themselves. So in this very passage, that the scribes are questioning the identity of Jesus and His authority to forgive sin, and essentially, is He God or is He not? We're seeing evidence that Jesus is God. Because He's reading their minds. He's examining their hearts, and He's also declaring to do something that only God has the authority to do. That's the surprising cure that Jesus provides. Is He going to heal the man? Well, we're going to see in just a moment, yes, He is. But before He heals him of his physical illness... First, he wants to take care of something more important. He heals him of his spiritual illness and declares him forgiven of sins. Isn't it wonderful to hear those words? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that you're carrying around a heavy weight of sin. There's guilt, there's regret. Man, you wish you could go back and undo some things that you've done. You're haunted by your past. You're chasing for something, anything to fill this void in your heart and in your life. And you know God is watching you. And you know He's fully aware of everything you've seen, everything you've done, everywhere you've been, everything that you've participated in. And you want so much to just be rid of that and have a fresh start. And Jesus can offer to you the promise today, your sins are forgiven. How is that possible? Well, this isn't just a blank statement and an empty promise. He's going to make this possible as you go further into the Gospel of Mark by dying upon a cross. One who is innocent suffering in your place. He says later in the Gospel of Mark that the Son of Man has come not to be served. That's typically what kings would do. People in authority come to be served. He says, I haven't come like that. He says, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as you go through the Gospel of Mark, if you're here this morning thinking, man, I want forgiveness. I want a second chance. I want a clean record. Well, before God, you can have that. If you would believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that he suffered in full the price that you deserve to pay. You do. And yet he paid that price for you so you can be forgiven. And you can hear those words, Son, Daughter, your sins are forgiven. The debt is paid. Now God can look upon you and see only the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And that is possible for each one of us today. Now perhaps there's somebody else who's here and you think, yeah, I've got some sin problems, but I'm really hoping when I stand before God someday in judgment that all of my good is going to outweigh my bad. And that's a pretty common way that many of us think. You know, we kind of think of justice in the eyes of God as some kind of divine scale. And so, we've done some bad things, we'll admit that, and yet we're really hoping, if I just keep going to church, and I pray, and I read my Bible every so often, and I walk those nice little old ladies across the street, and I'm helping out charities, and I'm doing different things, I'm hoping that all that weight of good is somehow going to kind of Tip the balance in favor and God will say, you know what? You did some bad things, but you're not such a bad guy or girl. I'm going to let you on into heaven. Come on in. It's all right. Everything will be good. We hope that somehow our good will outweigh our bad. And yet the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't say the wages of good works is life. It says the free gift of God is eternal life. And how? 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the alternative to getting what we deserve is receiving the free gift that God has promised through Jesus Christ. And I would challenge you, instead of thinking about you know, these eternal scales and somehow hoping that maybe God will let us into heaven if we just do enough good things, to think about the fact that Christ already paid the debt in full. We just need to receive that gift. And if we would trust in Christ, we can be forgiven and hear these words just as Jesus spoke it to that paralyzed man. It's a surprising cure, but it's actually the cure that we all need. And if there's still physical issues going on, God might heal those things here in this life. He might. You can pray. You can ask Him with what your struggles are, what your problems are. God is a kind and a loving God. He enjoys and delights in His people coming and asking Him for help. But if you don't receive an answer to that prayer and complete healing here in this life, you have eternal life to look forward to. And the Bible says that all things will be made new and we will be transformed out of these mortal bodies of decay that are perishable and we will be transformed into an imperishable, immortal, perfect body where there is no more sickness, no more disease, no more suffering, no more sin, no more separation from God, but we'll enjoy eternity with Him in a perfectly restored body. Amen? And we look forward to that. So this story here is a little foretaste of First comes forgiveness, and then comes physical healing. And physical healing may or may not happen in this life. For this man, it happened very quickly after his spiritual healing. But for all of us, if we trust in Christ, we do have ultimately that physical healing to look forward to at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we've seen the suffering man. We've looked at the surprising cure of Jesus and the controversy that that stirred up. Let's look lastly together in our final minutes at a stunned crowd. There was a stunned crowd on that day, wasn't there? In verse 8 again, immediately Jesus perceiving in His Spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, He turned to the scribes and He said, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, immediately, he picked up his bed, he went out before them all, that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, we were gathering for a prayer meeting at our church, and someone shared a request that at another church in town, a man had been doing some yard work around the property, and unfortunately, he tripped and fell. And I heard a couple different stories. One is that he was up on their roof, and he fell down. Another one was that he was using a leaf blower there on the steps in the front of the property, and his foot got tangled in the cord of that leaf blower, and he fell over, and he hit his head on the railing, the hand railing, and he broke his neck. And he survived, but he was literally paralyzed for the rest of his life. And I had the opportunity later on to go and visit that man in an ongoing care facility. And I was amazed that this man loved the Lord, and he was not complaining at all. Uh, He was paralyzed and he was completely dependent upon others and yet there was a joy inside of his heart and his spirit and I know he was looking forward to the day that his body would be made new, new again. But he knew the Lord. He was walking with the Lord. He had made peace with what had happened. And even if someone goes through a terrible accident like that and perhaps there's there's a medical solution 
And maybe they go to a series of specialists and they have surgeries, spinal surgery, back surgery, a number of things are done. And perhaps, perhaps somebody could come out of that state of paralysis and regain the feeling and the ability. Do you realize how long it would take for them to be able to walk normal again? They would be in months of physical therapy and practicing. I mean, they'd be like a toddler all over again, but people would be holding on and they'd be using the rails and they'd gradually be building their muscular strength back up again. This man had been paralyzed probably for years, if not his entire lifetime. And yet the moment that Jesus speaks to him, what does it say? He gets up, he grabs that straw bed next to him, and he walks out of the room. He doesn't even finish for the church service to end. He's so excited to be able to walk he, he leaps for joy and he's out as living proof that Jesus has power both for physical healing and also for spiritual healing. You see the connection there? The fact that Jesus can heal this man physically is proof that when he said he forgave his sins, he really did it. The outward miracle authenticates these very bold claims of Jesus to be able to forgive sin. How do we know Jesus forgave sin? He says, which is harder? And in one sense, we would think, well, it's harder to say, hey, get up and walk when somebody's paralyzed because that's something that's verifiable. He either does it or he doesn't. It's harder to make a claim and back it up when you say, hey, be completely fully restored right now versus saying, be forgiven. It's like, well, are they forgiven? Are they not? I mean, God usually doesn't speak out of heaven and tell us if he's forgiven the person. So how do we know if this man was really forgiven or not? So in a sense, we could say that saying rise, get up, and walk is the harder thing to say because you better back it up right then and there with proof. In another sense, Jesus had already done the harder thing because forgiving a lifetime of sin and an infinite death that can only be paid by suffering eternally in hell, to say to a man, your sins are forgiven and the debt is paid is a whole lot harder than saying, oh, by the way, go ahead and get up and walk out the door. So Jesus has done the hard thing by forgiving this man. And He will do the hard thing by paying for his sin upon the cross. While at the same time, He then says, hey, if you think it's hard for me to tell this man to get up, that's not difficult at all. Go ahead, sir. Get up. Walk. Take your bed. Walk out the door. Let's show everybody here that I am truly who I say I am. Later, Jesus will describe Himself as the bread of life that we must feed upon Him. The living waters that our thirsty souls are to drink deeply of Him. That He is the resurrection and the life that we believe in Him. If, even if we are to die, that we will find life in Him. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father but through Him. How can we back up all these claims? These are bold claims to be God. And the answer is, because He can say to a man, get up, rise, take your pallet, walk. And in that instant, this man obeys and is completely healed. The response of the crowd is much as I would expect the response to be for us. They're stunned. <laughs> they are stunned. It is like an electric shock has gone across this room. In verse 12, the man immediately picks up his bed. He walks out before them. And they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Calvary Church, when you look at Jesus, wouldn't you agree, we have never seen anyone like this. We have never seen anything like this. Built into the name of this church is Calvary. 
Calvary is a name for the hill where Christ died. Golgotha, the place of death, the place of the skull. A place where Jesus was executed on our behalf so we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And when you think about the fact that although we offended God, He made it possible for us to be made right with Him by giving His one and only Son who lived a perfect life and died in our place and rose again and that we can spend eternity and be seated at the, at the right hand in a favorable place with God because of His sacrifice for us, I can't say anything, but we haven't seen anything like this. There's no other God. There's no other religion. There's no other place I'd rather be than with the people of God studying the Word of God, singing the praises of God, focusing on the Son of God. There is no one else. There is nothing like this message in all the world. We want to drink deeply of Christ and find our lives completely in Him because He stands apart from all other teachers, all other saviors, all other religions. His power to heal, His promise to build His church, His promise to make a, play for, a place for us eternally. Wow! God is good. So a few closing questions for you as we wrap up this morning. Just three closing questions of application. First of all, are you in the habit of going to Jesus for help? We saw these friends do the right thing by taking the paralyzed man to Jesus. That's the right thing. That's what we need to do in those difficult times to run to Jesus, to press into Him, to know that He's not so busy that He won't give us attention. So run to the Lord. Cry out to Him. Let Him be your shelter and your strength. These friends expressed faith by going to God and knowing that whatever their problems were, however small or however great, God could sort this out. And He would take care of them. And they could trust and yield to Christ's touch in their lives. Don't be afraid to go to Jesus and to go back time and time and time again. Secondly, have you received the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life? Have you received that gift that God offers through the death of His Son? Have you heard the words of Jesus, you're forgiven? And that's available to you through His death and resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7-8 through says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. That means that He's paid the price for our sin and set us free. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Friends, redemption, salvation, forgiveness, it's available through His blood through a violent, unjust death that we can be made right with God and have the gift of eternal life. Receive that free gift if you've never done that. And you'll have opportunity at the end of the service and after the service, come and talk uh, with myself, uh, talk with one of the ministry leaders here at the church. Let us know if we can answer any questions that you have, if we can pray with you and for you. And it takes a while to sort this out. The, the Gospel of Mark, you found it in your Bible, hopefully. Keep reading that book because this book will explain more of who Jesus is and what he has done and why he is worthy of your faith and the gift of eternal life. And then lastly, I would ask, are you perhaps under attack for your Christian faith? Perhaps there's somebody here, you have a loved one in your family, and they just think it is absolutely the most ridiculous thing that you're a Christian. Maybe there's somebody at work. Maybe there's somebody at school. Maybe there's somebody that insults you. They scoff at you. You get those dirty looks. You, you feel left out from the rest of the crowd. Can I just encourage you that you're not alone? And that Jesus says when we are hated by the world, we are hated because they first hated Him. And because of our association with Jesus 
and our identity with Him, we're going to believe in a God who is a powerful and awesome God and who's revealed Himself through the Son of God, Jesus, and through His Word, the written revelation of God. But it is by faith. We believe it by faith, not by sight. And there's going to be people that scoff at that and laugh at that, and they may call you an idiot, and they may say you checked your door, your, 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 your brain out of the door when you walked into the church because only crazy people go into that place. But friend, can I encourage you that Jesus also was insulted. He was even called a blasphemer. And there were people that were scoffers and skeptics and unbelievers who looked at the work of Jesus and where they should have bowed the knee and said, this is the Son of God. Unfortunately, sadly, they hardened their heart against that and rejected the truth. It's not your job and it's not my job to save somebody. We can't do that. That's God's department. God alone can save somebody. But you can continue to be a powerful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for those people. Love them. Smile, turn the other cheek from time to time, but recognize this is not you against them. This is them against the Lord. There's something spiritual going on there. And if you are sometimes treated with hostility or just laughter and mockery, we see in this passage amongst other places, there's a hostility that's building. There's a spiritual battle going on between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And the Lord is going to vindicate Jesus Christ through these miracles that we see here in chapter 2 and throughout the rest of the New Testament. Ultimately, we know Jesus is truly the Son of God because He does perform the miracles and because He rises from the dead. His resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus is worthy of our trust. People may not understand, but we keep entrusting ourselves to a faithful Creator. And in due season, we will reap what we sow. Don't give up. Don't grow discouraged. Keep clinging to Jesus, the one who says your sins are forgiven and the one who has the power to lift you up in the proper time. So let's go ahead and bow in prayer this morning together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and we thank you so much for this picture of Jesus that we see here in this passage. We've been reminded afresh of your great love for us and the compassion and the pity and the care that Jesus takes on those who seem the most uh, neglected and the least important, and yet they are utterly important to Jesus. We thank you for Christ's demonstration of his power to have authority to forgive sins and even to take care of our physical problems and needs in this life. I pray for each person here that they would know and follow you and believe in Jesus if they've not done that before, and Lord, that they would keep clinging to you day by day to find you as their refuge and their strength. We thank you for Jesus, who is the fountain of living waters. We confess him and we pray all this in his name. Amen.